0: We continue a sermon series today called Questions Raised. I'm addressing a few of the questions that came up as our church has read through the New Testament together over the past 12 months. And some of the questions related to how we got the New Testament, why these books were chosen and others were not, and what that process was like. And so today I'm going to preach a sermon entitled The Process of Canonization and its implications for biblical interpretation. And I've got an outline in your bulletin. If you find that helpful, that's great. If you don't find it helpful, don't worry about it. You know, don't look at it. It's all right. Uh, I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25 from the NRSV translation. For all flesh is like grass, And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word and Lord help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Strange as it may seem, Christians have not always had the Bible. In fact, early Christians wrote, read, and circulated numerous pieces of literature for over 300 years before there was clear agreement on which books were authoritative Christian scriptures and which books were not. In this sermon, I will seek to explain how the biblical canon developed with particular focus on the New Testament canon. The English term canon is taken from a Greek term meaning rule, rule, or measuring stick. It designates a list of books that form the rule of faith or the measuring stick for Christian belief and Christian behavior. Right. Building on the work of Bible scholars Luke Timothy Johnson and Harry Gamble, I want to outline five basic steps in the development of the New Testament canon. The first step is was writing there were christian believers before there were christian books christian texts emerged as early christians wrote down their experiences of jesus christ and their beliefs about jesus christ stories about jesus's life death and resurrection circulated among early christian communities through oral tradition the late bible scholar kenneth bailey described it as informal but controlled oral tradition. It was informal in that there was no set teacher and anyone could join in telling the stories. Yet it was controlled because if someone fabricated a story or told a story the wrong way, the community would correct them and preserve the prior tradition because they knew and valued the oral traditions that constituted their group identity. These reliable oral traditions about Jesus were recorded in early Christian writings. Early apostles such as Paul also wrote letters to various Christian communities to convey instruction in theology and conduct. The authors wrote in Koine Greek, a common language of the ancient Greco-Roman world. They penned their works on papyrus, which is made from a plant, or on parchment, which is made from animal skins. After the writings were composed, the second step was use. Early Christians used Christian writings in their worship services for instruction in the gospel faith. The earliest Christian texts were written for public reading in Christian communities rather than for private devotional reading. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27 is where the Apostle Paul says, I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all of them. Christian writings were also exchanged among the earliest Christian communities. For example, Colossians four sixteen says, When this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. After the texts were written, and then used in worship gatherings. The third step in the development of the canon was collection. Local churches began to assemble collections of Christian writings, many of which were not written specifically for their community. This was a critical juncture in the development of the New Testament. Churches decided that Christian writings originally intended for one particular Christian community, were relevant and instructive for other Christian communities as well. For example, regarding the apostle Paul's multiple letters to several different churches, the early Christian leader Tertullian said, "What he says to one, he says to all." Paul's letters were among the first writings to be collected by various Christian communities. In 2 Peter 3:16, Paul's letters are called scripture. This verse shows how Christian writings began to be viewed as sacred scripture alongside the Jewish scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament. We know that early Christians read Christian scriptures in their worship services because around the year 155, the Christian leader Justin Martyr said that Christians read and preached from the Apostles and Prophets, in worship. After Christian texts were written, used in worship, and collected by various Christian communities, the fourth step was selection. This was a big one. The Christian movement produced far more writings than those found in the New Testament. For example, there were not only the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also the Gospels of Peter and Thomas and others. As early Christians encountered and reviewed various writings, they selected which ones were fit to be read in public worship for the nurturing of Christian identity. At least five factors seem to have motivated the early Christians to select a canon. The first factor was the simple passing of time. As time passed, The apostles, or eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, began to die out. When you realize a time is coming when you will no longer be able to ask an apostle what Jesus said about this or that, or what it was like to see the resurrected Christ, you realize you need to write down their recollections. Furthermore, the apostles were often consulted to settle disputes among early Christians because apostles had special spiritual authority. So as the apostles died out, it became important to determine which writings captured the true, authentic, authoritative tradition of the apostles and which writings did not. The second motivating factor in selecting a canon was the influence of Judaism. You may know that Christianity emerged from within Judaism a religion with holy scriptures. Early Christians used the Jewish scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament, and believed that Jesus was the goal of the Jewish law and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Since Jews had a collection of authoritative texts, it was natural for Christians to assemble our own compilation of authoritative texts. A third motivating factor was a teacher named Marcion. In the year 140, Marcion came to Rome and it became clear that his beliefs differed from the Roman church's beliefs. Marcion thought that the God of the Jewish scriptures or Old Testament was a vengeful God who was incompatible with the God revealed in Jesus and the New Testament who was a merciful God. So Marcion did not use the Old Testament. He developed a canon for his followers composed of 11 books, 10 of Paul's letters, and a shortened version of Luke's gospel. Marcion's questionable canon seems to have prompted mainstream Christians to begin refining their own canon. A fourth motivating factor was Montanism, named for a 2nd century teacher called Montanus. Now get a load of this guy. He declared the end was at hand and that he was ushering in the final stage of Christian revelation because he was the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised to his disciples. Can you say, preacher, with an ego problem? Montanus and his two women companions claimed to receive direct revelations from God developed a substantial following and produced a body of literature for their followers. Without an official canon in place, there were no checks and balances to measure the validity of these so-called revelations. Since Montanus claimed a continuing revelation from God, mainstream Christians had to assert that the events of the apostolic period the time when the apostles walked the earth with Christ and established the earliest churches, set the standards by which any new claims of revelation must be measured. A fifth motivating factor was a man named Tatian. Around the year 170, Tatian composed a single harmonized version of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John called the Diatessaron. This work was popular in Syria and was referenced in at least 12 early Christian writings. Tatian primarily used Matthew and filled in the gaps with material from Mark, Luke, John, and another source. Tatian was later condemned as a heretic, and the idea of one gospel text was abandoned in favor of multiple witnesses. Irenaeus the Bishop of Lyon made the decisive argument for four Gospels around the year 180. Irenaeus wrote, It is evident that the Word has given us the Gospel under four aspects, but bound together by one Spirit. By the end of the second century, the four Gospels and Paul's letters were agreed to be authoritative. Many writings, however, were still in dispute. As different groups of Christians began to select which books were fit to be read in public worship, different canons were generated. For example, a historical fragment from the 2nd century called the Muratorian Canon lists all the New Testament books except Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and 3rd John. It also includes two additional books, Wisdom of Solomon, and Apocalypse of Peter. In the third century, a scholar named Origen suggested that the authoritative writings were all the New Testament books except Hebrews, 2 Peter, Second and Third John, James, and Jude. Another third century leader named Hippolytus used 22 books as sacred scripture. His list is like our New Testament, but omits Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, Third John, And Jude. In the year 311, a prominent Christian historian named Eusebius categorized different books according to their various levels of acceptance in the church. He acknowledged as canonical the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation, though he called Revelation spurious. He listed other books as disputed books, including James, Jude, 2 Peter, and Second and 3 John. Another early canonical list, called the Cheltenham canon, developed around 360 in North Africa. It includes all the books of the New Testament except Hebrews, James, and Jude. In 363, the Council of Laodicea said 26 books were canonical, All the New Testament books except Revelation. I know many Christians today who might wish that canon would have stood because they're not that wild about reading Revelation. But in 367, the powerful Christian leader, Athanasius, penned an Easter letter listing all 27 New Testament books just as we have them today. He called the books fountains of salvation. And he declared, "In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from them." Although some in Athanasius' church questioned second Peter and supported a popular book called the Shepherd of Hermas, Athanasius' canon stood. After the books of the New Testament were selected as authoritative The fifth and final stage in the development of the New Testament canon was ratification at the Council of Hippo in North Africa. In 393, the illustrious St. Augustine supported Athanasius' 27-book canon, and it was officially confirmed. Four years later, the Council of Carthage ratified the same 27 books, and the New Testament has been in place ever since whereas the four gospels and paul's letters were accorded canonical status quite early the most contested books throughout the church's history were hebrews james revelation second peter jude and second and third john in the end the early church selected the new testament canon by using three main criteria The first was widespread use. The books of the New Testament were used broadly in early Christian communities, representing diverse cultures and geographical settings. The second criterion was apostolic origin. Each book was believed to be authored by an apostle or by someone who was very close with an apostle. In this way, the books possessed apostolic authority. The third criterion was theological consistency. Each book had to be theologically consistent with the other texts included in the canon and with the mainstream faith of the church. Since the church read the Jewish scriptures or Old Testament, alongside the New Testament scriptures during worship services, both were included in the total canon, which we call the Bible. The Christian Bible has the same books as the Jewish Bible for its Old Testament, but they appear in a different order. For example, the Jewish Bible ends with Chronicles, whereas the Old Testament ends with Malachi. One reason is that Malachi provides a beautiful segue to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Malachi ends by saying, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And early in Matthew, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness looking a lot like the prophet Elijah and he introduces the Lord who has come, Jesus Christ. Looking at the big picture, it's important to realize that books did not become authoritative because they were put on a canonical list. Rather, They were put on a canonical list because the church was using them as authoritative scriptures. In this sense, the process of canonization was organic or grassroots in nature. Many Christians, myself included, believe that God guided the church through the long and thoughtful process of canonization in order to give us the authoritative literature we need to worship God and follow Christ with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now that we have reviewed the process of canonization, we might ask, well, why in the world does this matter for Christians today? I want to propose five ways in which the process of canonization can inform our modern-day biblical interpretation. First, since the canon consists of 66 books compiled into one volume, we can view the Bible as both a library and a book. The Bible is a library of distinct pieces of literature, each with its own themes, purposes, and values. Yet the Bible is also a unified narrative moving from the creation of all things in Genesis to the consummation of all things in Revelation. To read it only as a library of discrete writings would be to minimize the canon, the ordered arrangement of books that tell a coherent story of God. But to read the Bible only as a book would be to disregard how each piece of literature within it was of individual use to the earliest Christians and proved so reliable and helpful on its own merit that it was canonized as authoritative scripture. Therefore, the Bible is best read as both a library and a book as we attend to the value and themes of each piece of literature within it and also attend to the overarching story of God that it tells us. Second, since the church decided to include four distinct gospels rather than one harmonized version, we can recognize, appreciate, and learn from the distinct emphases of each gospel rather than trying to harmonize everything into one seamless account. This approach is fruitful because each gospel has unique features that enrich our understanding of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. As Bible scholar Richard Burridge puts it, we have four gospels in the New Testament, not one, which implies plurality and diversity in our views of Jesus. On the other hand, there are only four, not 44, which implies limits, to the plurality. Indeed, the four Gospels provide both a stimulus and a control for understanding Jesus Christ. They imply both variety and unity in the faith of the church, which we can embody together collectively in our discipleship. Third, since the biblical canon developed within the church and was compiled by the church, we can affirm that the Bible is best interpreted with the church. This is in no way to diminish the private reading of Scripture for the purpose of personal devotion, nor is it to diminish the value of intellectual study of the Bible in a university setting. Rather, it is to affirm that Christians interpret Scripture best when we are in conversation with other Christians about its meaning. We learn Scripture most profoundly and we absorb its truth most fully when we read it, study it, interpret it, discuss it, and enact it in Christian community. Fourth, since the four Gospels and Paul's letters were the first books to be accepted as canonical and were never seriously disputed, We can emphasize the four Gospels and Paul's letters in our theology and our biblical interpretation. All the books of the Bible carry authority and together form a coherent narrative of God's dealings with humanity. So all of them are profoundly important. But it's not out of order to emphasize certain books of the Bible more than others. In fact, it is manifestly appropriate the 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, taught that some biblical books express the gospel more clearly than others. And he gave a list. The 20th century evangelist, Billy Graham, consistently recommended one book of the Bible for people to read first. It was not Hebrews, Second Peter, Jude, or Revelation. It was the gospel of John. Put simply, there's more gospel in John than in 3 John. There is more gospel in Romans than in 2 Peter. And the gospel is the key. Which leads to my fifth and final proposal for how the process of canonization can inform our biblical interpretation today. Since the gospel inspired the creation of the New Testament and the Bible as we know it, we can interpret the entire Bible in light of the gospel of Christ. It is essential to understand that the Bible is vital, but not ultimate. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to the end of God's glory. Rather than enticing us to worship the ink on its own pages, the Bible always points to God, to Christ, to the Spirit, and to the Gospel. For example, as we hear the words of 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, many of us recognize the part that says, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Yet verse 25 adds, that word is the good news that was proclaimed to you. What endures forever is the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, and the gospel he brings in his person and his proclamation. The primary reason the Bible is so extremely important is because it points to the living word of God, Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. So as we read the Bible and study it prayerfully and carefully, let us interpret it in light of the gospel and let us bow before its centerpiece Jesus Christ as we exercise faith in Christ and as we follow him in love for God and neighbor we receive abundant life yes even life everlasting amen if you have never put your faith in our savior won't you come forward this morning and put your faith in Christ? If you would like to be baptized, won't you come forward today and we'll schedule your baptism? If you would like to join Second Baptist Church, we would be very happy to welcome you into our community of faith where we study Scripture and follow Jesus together. As we now enter into our final hymn of worship, let us respond as the Holy Spirit leads.